Welcome to Off Key, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman Wright. This season of Off Key will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. This week, we're turning back to the songwriting side of creating music, looking at the various players that make up the songwriter's team. If a songwriter wants to make money from their work, they need to get it out into the world, and there are some players that help to make this happen. As we discussed in the episode on the songwriter, many songwriters write on their own. However, co-writing is very important to songwriting in the industry these days, especially in popular music and for TV and film. We all know some great co-writing teams, such as Paul McCartney and John Lennon, or Elton John and Bernie Taupin. But the co-writing I'm referring to is less about exclusive long-term writing relationships, and more about bringing various skilled songwriters into a room to write great songs to be placed with a particular artist, or in a particular film or TV show. A key player on the songwriter's team that is instrumental in bringing songwriters together and finding these placements is the music publisher, which is the primary team player we'll focus on in this episode. As the Canadian Music Publishers Association puts it, the publisher can be understood as the manager of songs or the place where songwriters and artists connect. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Jowett from Network Music Group about how his company formed and what publishers do for songwriters and artists. I've found, co-founded Network in 1984, so ages ago. And at the time, we started basically a label to put out acts like Skinny Puppy and Grapes of Wrath. This is way back in the day. That was a band called Mauve. And uh, we basically started a publishing company where to do, we signed acts to publishing as well as to a label agreement, kind of because we, we kind of were told it was a good thing to do, but we didn't really understand it. Mm. Um, so we signed a lot of the our earlier acts, including Sarah McLaughlin when we signed her to publishing. And we actually found it was great to have their publishing because when we when we basically release those artists albums uh you know all over the world with through different distribution deals we would work with sub publishers so we would have the publishing rights for the world and then we would sub publish them in markets like germany and france and japan and australia and those sub publishers would help us with those artists so they would for example go to the labels that were releasing those artists in say germany and help uh, just kind of ensure that they were on top of it, doing promotion. They would recommend agents for us. And uh, it became really, really valuable. Uh, they became, the sub-publishers became very valuable allies for us in the promotion of our artists. And so publishing predominantly for us in the earlier years was to complement the the, the, uh, the acts that we had signed to the label. And we didn't sign a lot of publishing rights outside of the acts that were signed to the label. Then around... 15 years ago, we, we kind of changed that and we started to sign writers and artists publishing that weren't necessarily on the network label. So like Airborne, um, Sinead O'Connor, uh, we did quite a lot of big catalog deals. And, and we found that it was a very 
good. It, it, it was it was kind of how do you say? We we felt we could help help those acts predominantly through through pitching their music to film and TV. An act like Airborne, for example, I don't know if you know them, but they're a bit like ACDC. And so when ACDC may turn down a sink, we would often be able to get that sink for Airborne. And uh, it was a very good income for them and for us. We would collect the live performance income for them, radio performance income, do administration, arrange co-writing. And it, it actually, the, and the, so the publishing company really grew. And we had a quite a big roster of, of writers uh, that weren't necessarily aligned with the label, but we're doing very, very well. We did quite well in country. We did quite well in pop. Um, I think more and more in a streaming era where, you know, in Spotify, for example, 90% of the time people are listening to playlists with songs rather than albums. So the stronger your songs are, the more likely you are to get well-streamed and uh, and then also to get radio play and to get synchronized synchronized so having strong songs is absolutely crucial so the role of a publisher becomes really key in uh in basically aligning really strong writers that are through, hopefully in your roster with other writers or artists that need strong songs so one of the things that i do for example quite often is if one of our writers They'll go on a writing trip to LA, for example, for say two weeks, and then they'll write with a combination of other really good writers and artists. And hopefully, from that, what will happen is those artists will release some of the songs that are that that are written together mm-hmm. with the writer, and and then and basically promote them, particularly of the singles, to radio uh, or for synchronization. And that's how you earn income. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, for, for we have a, an artist named John Bryant on network, and he went to LA and wrote a writing trip that we set up, and he wrote with a, an artist named Sarah, a really good writer named Sarah Emily, and the ensuing song that that came from that um, is now a really, really, really strong single. And in another case, she wrote with an, another writer that we published called Banners. I don't know if you know Banners, but no. basically, Banners is a British guy that lives in in um, Toronto, okay. and we with him. So we set up a writing trip with him to L.A. He wrote with Sarah Emily, and he had come up with a song called Got It In You. That song, even before it was released, was synchronized in, like, licensed to a film and TV mm. about eight times. So wow. it, that, that, that's what comes out of co-writing. If you've got really good co-writing, then theoretically what you're going to get is really strong, very placeable songs, either with other artists or by the artist that's actually the co-writer. And then the label or their artists are going to go and pitch that song for some TV placement to get it performed on the radio. And now if they play it live, then there's live performance in them that comes in for that song as well. Mm-hmm. So that's how publishers really make money and the writers make money is through the uses of those songs. Right. And I think probably the number one, the, well, actually the number one duty of a, of a publisher is to make sure the administration, the rights is done very well. The number two duty generally these days is to set up co-writes and to come up with so that the writer can come up with great songs with other writers or artists and then the number three duty is probably to make sure that they that they great they have really good film and tv solicitation like most things in music the role of the music publisher can vary as we discussed in the episode introducing the songwriter this variation can be seen looking at one of the songwriting centers of the world nashville i spoke with karen kosowski a songwriter and producer in nashville tennessee and Mark Jowett about the role of publishers and how they compare between Nashville and elsewhere in North America. A publisher is someone that a songwriter would partner up with um, who can help with 
exploiting the songs that you write mm. to their full potential. Okay. So that could mean um that could mean taking the song that you wrote and pitching it to an artist who's looking for songs for their record. Um that could mean pitching it to uh, a TV show that's looking for a song that your your song seems like it could be a good fit for. Um a publisher is great for connecting writers with artists who are wanting to co-write. Um, and publishers do a lot of that where they, especially here in Nashville, publishers, you know, they're managing huge calendars for their writers and their writers are, you know, co-writing with different people every day of the week, sometimes twice. Wow. Um, publishers also uh, handle the business side of stuff for you. So, you know, making sure that all your money is being collected from everywhere in the world and all the different royalty streams that uh, exist, you know, it's right. a lot to administrate. So, but every publisher is different too, you know? Um, so I think it, it all comes down to the type of publisher you have and what, what your, what your arrangement with them is, you know, mm-hmm. what, what you're looking for in your public, for your publisher to do. And if, if they'll do that for you, you know, it's different for everyone, but there's such a, the, the scene here is, is so cool. Um, and unlike anywhere I've ever seen in any of the cities I've written in, you know, where um, some some writers are are jumping between, you know, a 10 a.m. write and then they're at another write, write at 3 p.m. And then sometimes they even go to another write at 7 p.m., you know? Wow, yeah. I feel like here, um, even if you are um, signed to a publisher, there's a lot of cross-pollination. I think that, you know, publishers work together. Publishers are constantly, you know, looking for new and and cool creative collaborations. And I, because I'm self-published, um, you know, I'm in contact with several publishers who often, you know, think of me for rights when, when something comes up, right. you know, whether it's one of their writers and an artist and they think, oh, may- maybe Karen would be cool for this. Um, and so I'm always grateful when someone thinks of me in that way. Um, yeah, I feel like it's just, there's a lot of just cross-pollination, a lot of creative collaboration all the time. Nashville in some ways is its own ecosystem. Mm. And it's, it's a very, very unusual in that in Nashville, most artists don't write their own songs. They cover other people's songs. Where in the rest of the world, most artists want to at least co-write their songs. Not that many artists don't write any of the songs at all, other than some pop, you know, like pure pop writers. So in Nashville, you have a lot of writers working with other writers, coming up with songs, which then they pitch to, writer, to artists like Kenny Chesney or mm-hmm. Randall whatever whereas outside of that that's very very unusual and very difficult to get songs that way generally the writers that are getting cuts are actually in the room with the artists right. not always but generally so if you're working on a maroon five cut or like you know with any of those bigger acts or, or smaller acts generally the artist is in the room and you're co-writing with the artist and so the, the roles are a little different. In Nashville, as a publisher, you're basically setting up co-writes with, between writers. And then your job is to pitch to lawyers and managers. I shouldn't say lawyers, sorry. Managers and A&R people that represent the artists and trying to get those artists to cut the songs. Whereas in, if you're a publisher, 
outside of Nashville, like say in Toronto or what, what I do, for example, or many of the other publishers, you're, you're trying to pitch your writers to co-write with artists. Right. And you hope that those artists are signed to really strong labels and that those labels will then take the, you know, will like the songs with the artist and then they'll release the songs and pitch them to film and TV and promote them to the radio and they release them as singles. So it's different in that way. I think, I think both are equally as valid and uh, they're, they're different too in that in Nashville, the contracts are quite different because in Nashville, the most contracts aren't release dependent. So what, what you do is in Nashville, if you're a publisher, you pay a writer an advance of let's say it's $20,000. The writer's obligation is to give you say, 20 songs mm. that year. And once they've done that, they've met their obligation. And that's it. And then as a publisher, you need to decide whether you're going to continue to work with that writer or not. Outside of Nashville, that is very rare. What generally works outside of Nashville is you give the publisher, let's say, $20,000 advance, and then you have what's called a minimum delivery commitment deal. So the writer gives you five songs or 10 songs or whatever, but they don't become approved commitments and approved songs until a label has released them. So until that point, you, the artist has, or the writer has to continue to deliver you songs. And so in one way, there's more assurance as, as, a, as a publisher because it's one thing for a writer to give you songs, but if, they just, if they're not released into the world, they don't really mean very much. And so your job as a publisher is to try and place those songs with artists or writers to get them released. But, but until that point, you, you know, they're, they're, the writer is with you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas in Nashville, once they deliver those songs, you then have to decide whether you're going to work with the, continue to work with the writer or not. If you don't, then they go and send with another publisher probably. So it's, it's actually, they're very different models. And Nashville in some ways is quite risky in that way. Because if you're left with these songs and if they're not placed, then you could lose money. Right. Um, so, but on the other hand, if you have a writer or several writers that that are getting writing great songs and they're getting placed with country, lots of country writers, country artists, it can be a great model because then you just keep on going and it, it's a really good relationship. But it, but there's risk there, and you really, really, really need to know what you're doing right. to to not nationally do publishing on a good good level. Along with setting up co-writes. Music publishers play a role in finding placements for songwriters' songs in movies or TV shows. Synchronization placements, or sync, are great opportunities to make money on the composition side. I spoke with Norman Arnold, a composer and producer based out of LA, who has decades of experience composing music for Warner Brothers, Disney, ABC, NBC Universal, CNN, and more, including the 2019 Emmy Award-winning documentary Orchard House. Norman explained a bit more about working in the field of sync and how songwriters can take advantage of these opportunities. I also spoke with Mark Jowett from Network Music Group about the role of publishers in finding TV and film placements. You know, and, and it has changed a little, you know, getting into digital and getting, you know, into the streaming services, um, you know, the, the streaming uh, residuals or royalties definitely don't, aren't, aren't in the same category as, say, you know, primetime television. Uh, mm. So... Yeah, the, the landscape has changed. Um, I think when we started, there was in, in our department in, in Warner Brothers that they didn't really have a lot of music choices. So anything new that came in was used and, and put on TV right away. And mm. um, so in terms of it being lucrative, though, I, I will say that the I think the biggest difference now when everyone talks about, you know, simply put, when, you know, people talk about streaming revenue now in digital, if you had a song on 
you know, Spotify, what is it, 0.0006 that was sent for a stream. Mm -hmm. But if you have that same song on, uh, you know, a primetime show, whether it be a, a Warner show or Fox, it's it's probably six zero zero points here. Like it's probably, you know, some, uh, you know, a minute on late night primetime can still be about six hundred dollars. So. Mm -hmm. The, the the real revenue comes in um, when you have a lot of content on a lot of TV shows. So has that model mm. changed? Not not really. But I think what's also changed is that there just a, there's a lot more there are a lot more shows that are online, a lot more streaming, and and less royalties in in that area. So well, sync is is just short for synchronization, um, and really what it is is. Um, taking your intellectual property, your mm -hmm. IP, which I know you've talked about, you have, you know, your composer and your publisher and, and your master recording, you know, whatever, your song, mm -hmm. and you're syncing it up to a, whether it be, a, you know, a, a audio or a, you know, visual, your audio syncing to visual. So whether that be online uh, streaming, whether that be a TV show, whether it be advertising, and who's ever using that pays you what's called a synchronization fee to use mm. your song. So what what it really entails is obviously having your, your the, the main thing about sync is having your paperwork together and, and having all of the rights recorded properly with your, your songwriting and your publishing company and your and your master recording rights uh, right. it's really it, it's super important that all that's completely dialed and what you would do the, the easiest thing really is to find shows I mean, first of all find shows that you think your music would work well in i mean that's that's the main part if an artist is out there and they they really want to target um, a show. Really mm -hmm. listen to the music that's on there because the, the worst thing is when. I, and again, from my perspective, when I was on the other side of the desk receiving music at Warner Brothers, the worst thing is when someone would either contact us and or call and say, "Hey, so you know, what do you need or what are you working on?" You know, it's mm -hmm. it's really important for the musicians and artists to do that work. You know, the executives right. or music supervisors are busy. If you find a show, you can find out, you know, find online who the music supervisor is and, you know, really do do a little bit of work on your end and say, hey, I've watched these three or four episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, here are some songs that I think might fit. And, you know, people, uh, music supervisors do want music. The, the problem sometimes is becomes with unsolicited material. It can right. get a little complicated. So, you know, you, you, the idea of just blanket um, sending things is never really a good idea. But, you know, beginning a relationship or sending a link to your mm -hmm. website or doing other bits of information when you meet people, I think face-to-face -face, uh, is, is really important. So, right. you know, for some, yeah, for someone who wants to start out, uh, I would actually, frankly, start really, really uh, small and, and really, really close to home, you know, wherever, mm -hmm. like your listeners, I know you're, if you're in Toronto or Montreal or, you know, LA, whatever it is, I think it's really important to build a relationship, like, almost like right in your own backyard. Um, yeah. Because it, whether it be with an independent film, let's say you have a song and so just just do it, even if there's not a lot of dough or anything money in it, you know, just <laughs> do it because you're going to go through the process of figuring out what you know the executive producer needs or what is what does the film need in order to make this happen, you know, so mm -hmm. it, it, you get experience. And I think having uh, a smooth transition of rights and a smooth transition of licensing is, is the most important th thing. It's almost most more important than the song. You know, if you have a, 
the perfect song and you can't figure out, well, hey, did the, does the bass player part of the writer? Does who, you know, who owns, right. the, you know, is the keyboard player on the publishing? What? No one's going to touch it with, with, with a 10 foot pole because there are too many rights involved. So, you know, my advice to someone starting out is to really think about the, the, the shows or the places you think your music would work, mm-hmm. get, get your rights in order. And if you think it's a, you know, a really big show in LA, maybe try to find a smaller production that's happening. Maybe like, I don't know if you're in Vancouver or there's so much production now in Toronto, there's uh, different parts of Canada. You can maybe get in through someone who's working on the set or other parts of the the editors are a great place to start too, where, Mm. um, you know, and that's what I would try and do. And then once you've got two or three or four of these in place, and then you can have a little bit of a resume, then you can maybe start upping a little bit and, um, possibly reaching out to form a relationship with some of the bigger music supervisors. Uh, and that would be the approach I would take. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people now, uh, just the way things are online and digitally and with everything else, you can self-publish. I mean, once mm-hmm. you, you know, technically, once you've created your song and you've written it and it's uh, on your laptop or wherever it is, you're the songwriter and, and you're also the publisher mm-hmm. by default. So, you know, all you need to do is whether it's so can or ASCAP or BMI, when you register your your song and, and yourself as a writer, is start a start a, a publishing company right mm-hmm. then and there. And then you're the so you know, to get started, do you need to have a publishing company? Not really. Actually, no is the answer. You don't need one. Okay. Um, and think about it through that the publishing company, you know, it's it's a business for them when they when they look at this. It's like what can we what can we receive for uh, you know a license fee for this song? So, mm-hmm. um, if if you build up a good catalog and you start to have success, um, you know your chances of getting a better publisher uh, increase because they know that there's income to be had. So, again, right. I think it, it it's back to building up your your catalog as, as self publishing till you get to a point where you know if someone are, and, and the other thing is if 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 you're a, a songwriter and you write. 10 songs in, uh, you know, as a Warner Chapel or, or someone offers you Anthem, you know, offers you a big publishing mm-hmm. deal. That's a that's a great avenue, too, because they're going to want to recoup their investment and obviously work to place your songs. So right. uh, if someone offers you one. It's absolutely a great deal if, if, if you if, if it works for you. It's, I think it, uh, we, we have a small team of people that they're based in LA, New York, and London, and they, they do film and TV licensing. And generally, uh, it, most shows have a music supervisor that, that's hired right. on specifically to, to basically guide the music for that show and working in conjunction with the, with the director, I guess, and the editor. And so we pitched our song to those supervisors. And it's usually done through dialogue uh, through meetings, through uh, IM or Slack, for example, mm. or Disco, which are all file sharing mediums. And that's how music is shared. Yeah, and it's actually a good time for film and TV licensing because with Netflix coming on board and now Apple TV and Amazon Prime, there's a lot of shows being made for those services. Right. And uh, basically it means they need a lot of music content. So it's actually quite a good time to be in that world with your music because it's shows really need music at the moment. And they, you know, so if you have a good music, there's a good chance, which is really applicable for film and TV. There's probably not been a better time to be able to place it in in some ways the the revenue from it, like the fees have dropped somewhat, uh, just music out there, but 
Uh, the, but the, the opportunity to play said is has been really, really never been higher. And it's not only good financially, but it's also good in terms of exposure. Because if you have a, a song, say, in Sherlock or one of the bigger shows, that's a really good people way for people to discover you as an artist. Right. And then, you know, they, they Shazam you. And then you can see the immediate reaction after a really good film and TV placement in terms of people Shazamming the song and then discovering you, your artist, essentially. Another key player that comes into the picture when a songwriter considers taking on new team members, such as a publisher is the entertainment lawyer. Songwriters and artists are essentially small businesses, and in order to understand the business side of a creative industry like music, the lawyer is an extremely helpful resource. Given the history of contentious agreements between artists and, for example, labels, I think any newcomer to the industry should be well aware of the risks of signing a contract that you do not fully understand. And when legal lingo is involved, agreements can be challenging to unpack. Byron Pasco, a music lawyer from Edwards Creative Law, explained his role as a lawyer in the industry. How I describe what I do with musicians is that I help them to review agreements that they're asked to sign and help them to prepare agreements that that they want other people to sign. So it's very transactional. It's very uh, agreement-focused with respect to the different players in the ecosystem, the writer, the performer, the label, the publisher, the session musicians, um, whoever else I'm missing from that list, um, but all the different people and how they interact with each other and how they document or don't document their relationships with each other. Um, in terms of you know client work, um, there are there are and have been a variety of people that I've you know, helped with with one contract, and I haven't heard from them since because that may be the only contract they've ever been asked to sign, you know that warranted having you know some legal advice on it. There are other clients that I have that I do work for every week or every month for years because they're just a variety of things that they you know, need help with. Um, so it varies. And in terms of genre, it varies from you know, folk to hip hop, uh, rock to you know, um, metal and everything in between in a variety of languages uh, involving partners you know, in their own backyard or in their own province or across Canada or elsewhere in the world. Going back to the music publisher, what does a typical publishing deal look like, and what should a songwriter be aware of when considering one? When a songwriter signs a contract with a publisher, they grant the company the sole right to publish their songs during the term specified in the contract. The publishing company then takes a percentage of royalties from the sales and use of the song, which varies depending on the contract. As we've learned, any contract can be totally different from the next one, and one should always unpack the fine print. However, there are a few general things to look out for when considering an agreement, including the term of the contract, the royalty splits, and the ownership of the songs. I spoke with Byron Pascoe from Edwards Creative Law and Mark Jowett from Network Music Group about the key things songwriters should be aware of when considering a publishing deal. So there's different types of publishing deals. There might be a deal with a publishing administrator. There might be a deal with a a co-publisher. There might be, or there might be a co-publishing deal with a publisher. Um, the scope of either one of those deals might be for a specific number of songs or a specific amount of time. Um, so, with a, with a, with an administrative deal, generally speaking, you are having someone else collect the money that your song that your compositions have been earning internationally. 
And in return, the administrator gets to keep a fee, a percentage, a commission off of what the company collects. They don't own the music. They usually don't have a long-term uh, set of rights. It might be for a year or two years or you know, it, it renews every year. But it's, it's, it's relatively speaking a short-term engagement to collect all existing royalties that have been um, left on the table, let's say, like haven't been collected from the past, and also to collect writing royalties that are generated over the course of the term of the songwriting or rather of the publishing administration deal. So that's kind of one category of publishing deals. And another category is working with a full-on publisher who is doing a variety of things. They're, they're doing everything that the administrator would do by way of collecting royalties. They're also ideally seeking opportunities to place the music into film, TV, games, advertisements, etc. They're also seeking opportunities to have the writer write for other artists um, and to have other artists you know, write with them and to, you know, generally speaking, create you know, writing opportunities between, between their clients and, and other people. Um, in, in a co-pub, in, in, that's, in that kind of, in, in a deal with a, with a, you know, a publisher, um, it could be for the, the scope could be one song the scope could be an album. The scope could be a timeline. So from, you know, it might be, let's say, three years from today. And the scope of the publishing agreement is every composition I've ever written and every composition I write in the next three years. Um, there may be an extension. So the publishing company may have an option to extend the timeline of their rights. Um, in a co-publishing scenario, generally speaking, the writer is assigning half of the copyright in her compositions to the publisher, and therefore the compositions are co-owned by the publisher. Um, the way the royalties are split up, I mean, it really de it depends, and I've seen a lot of different agreements, but generally speaking, they're sharing uh, perhaps equally the publisher's share of performance rights royalties. So back to SOCAN, if I'm a writer and I have a publisher and I have one song, or for each song, if there's um, a dollar that's generated by SOCAN, I get 50 cents as the writer, the publisher gets 50 cents as the publisher, the publisher splits that 50 cents with me equally, so I'm getting 25% from the publishing, 50% from the writing, so I'm getting 75 cents overall. That, that, that may be how it is, or there may be a slightly different formula. The publisher is also collecting mechanical royalties, so that's being split up in a certain way. The writer should be I mean, usually at least getting 50% of that. If the publisher gets placements for the music, then the publisher is taking a fee of the upfront money that's generated from that placement of the song. Um, those are kind of the, the key um, royalty splits that would be in a co-publishing deal. And, um, you know, sometimes a publishing deal is associated with a record label deal. So if you're working with a, um, some record labels, some record labels will try to get your publishing rights concurrently, which is fairly common. Sometimes if you're working with a larger label, they have a, a sister company that's a publishing company. And so you deal, you do it, you're offered a deal concurrently to do a label deal with, you know, company one and a publishing deal with company two, and they're essentially you know, owned by the same person or people, 
but it's a different company. So um, other aspects of publishing deals, um, sometimes there's an advance against future revenue. Um, there, it's not as common in administrative deals, especially for, you know, like let's say emerging artists. But uh, if you're assigning your rights, if you're assigning half of the ownership of your compositions to a publisher, it's not unreasonable that you get some kind of advance. Now, every situation is different, but that's kind of a general statement. Um, on decision making, you either have any control, either have control or not, uh, or some degree of control over decisions about the placement of your music. Um, an agreement might say, you know, we for sure won't put your music in religious ads or, you know, pornography or fur ads or religious or uh, political ads. Um, but we make all the other decisions. Or it might say that you, the writer, um, have the right to give approval for every placement. But if you don't answer within, you know, four seconds, then we can decide for you. So, or like, you know, 24 hours. But um, so that's an aspect to it, the decision, decision making. Um and another key thing is about termination. So basically, you know, when can you get out of this agreement if it's not something that you end up, you know, if you don't end, if, if it's not, if it's not going as planned, if they're, you know, not doing what they said they would do, um, you know, how, how do you plan ahead for that potential, you know, interest to terminate? So that, that's the whole area that may or may not be covered by the publishing agreement that you're presented with. Yeah, I, I think it depends what you're trying to get out of a publishing deal. If you if you want a publisher that's really proactive on your behalf, pitching music to film and TV, and 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 getting good corrects for you, then you you know you need to look and ensure the publisher probably doesn't have a massive roster and a small staff because then you're probably not going to get a lot of service. It's probably best generally in those cases to work with a smaller publisher that has a good reputation and think will work really, really hard on your behalf. They may, they may pay a smaller advance, um, but they, they may do, they may be a much better partner for you in terms of moving your career along. Right. On the other hand, you're after a bigger advance and really, really like, that's what you really care about is getting it like a, like a, like a kind of a bigger money deal. Then sometimes you are best assigned to, to a major publisher. But in those cases, because they have so many writers, it's hard to know you're going to get any service mm. because they're very pitching. You know, they're, they're very, very big writers because they kind of have to. Uh, so those those are the kind of the main things. You just want to try to have like like it's good to have, for example, um, a budget for writing. Like a writing budget is good to have. It's look at how long they want the songs for. And if you're with a smaller publisher, you should hopefully be able to get away with them not having the songs for too long. So you can still, at some point, get them back. Um, whereas if, if you, you know, if basically, but publishers are going to come along and offer you a big advance, generally they're going to want the songs for perpetuity. And you need to decide whether that's something you really want to do. In other words, you're never going to get those songs back. So there, there, it's, I would suggest, you know, publishing deals are complex and it's a complex landscape. So if you're entering a publishing deal and it's it's a fairly weighty one, in other words, they're asking for long retention, you probably want to work with a lawyer, right? A, an entertainment lawyer who really knows publishing and knows what the landscape is and, and give you advice, basically. Right. And by long retention, that means like they would be collecting on that song for a certain amount of years after you sign the deal? Yeah. Okay. 
Yes, exactly. And if it's a perpetual deal, what that means is that they essentially own the songs forever. Wow. So you never get them back. And in most cases, for a lot of a lot of major publishers, they, they're paying very big advances compared to, say, smaller publishers, but they'll want the rights for, for forever. Whereas you smaller publishers may pay a much smaller advance, but they'll get the song back in, say, 10 years or 15 years or something like that. But you build up a really big catalog and you do very well as a writer, that catalog can become very, very valuable. Right. And it's great to have those songs come back to you at a certain point so that you can then do a bigger deal um, with a lot more leverage because you, you're, you know, your catalog is earning income mm-hmm. and the publisher wants to represent you. Or you, know, you have that destiny, whereas if you give those rights away early on and you never get those songs back, it's, you know, you're in a different position essentially. So it's those kind of things that make sense that are that are really important to look at, which is why having a good music lawyer who really knows the landscape well, because it continues to change, um, can give you good advice. There's three, there's three main revenue streams. The, the first is what's called a mechanical. And that it used to be from when, when a CD was sold or a vinyl, there would be, there'd be the artist royalty, the master royalty, then the publishing royalty would be the mechanical royalty, which is kind of the mechanical reproduction of music on CDs or... Uh, you know, vinyl. Of course, that's changed now because most 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 of the way people can see music is through streams and downloads, predominantly. Streams. But it's still called mechanical, and it's still a very very source, really crucial you know, source of income for writers and publishers. So that that income is collected through in Canada through CMRA. Mm. Um, it does that as well, but CMRA has done that for many many years, and they're very good at it actually. And so they collect the mechanical income. Uh, then the second kind of income is performance income, mm-hmm. and that gets pl- that use play gets paid if your song is performed on the radio, whether it's like CBC for example or commercial radio. Um, so that those that income is collected through SoCan in Canada and, and like-minded societies, uh, collecting societies outside of Canada mm-hmm. as well. With affiliates. So, for example, if you have a radio play in, Germany, in say, Britain on Radio 2 or whatever, then uh, the PRS, which is the British Society, will, pay, will collect the performing royalty, pay that through to SOCAN, and then SOCAN pay, provides the publisher's share to the publisher and the writer's share to the writer of the publisher's right. And then finally, there's the, synchroni- there's the synchronization revenue stream. So when something is synchronized, there is a sync fee, and as I was mentioning earlier, Generally, there are fifty percent of the sync fee goes to, for the master, and then fifty percent of it goes for the publisher and the writer. And so we collect that fifty percent, and we usually pay the writer. Generally, something like seventy-five percent of that is is around standard. Mm. And so, if it's a ten thousand dollars sync fee, five thousand would go to the label, five thousand would go to the publisher. Of that five thousand, the the I think basically the writer would usually get thirty-seven fifty. Right. So those it, there's also one other one, and that's basically broadcast performance. So let's say your your song is synchronized on Grey's Anatomy, and that's syndicated throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the synchronization hap- the fee happens at the beginning, but whenever that song is performed, is like played on say Bulgarian TV or Japanese TV or Australian TV. There's another broadcast performance income royalty that's made and that again gets collected to societies and then eventually that makes its way back through the societies to the publisher and the writer and that can be very significant income actually if you're on a like a good episodic television or or a digital subscription Mm -hmm. um, and it's syndicated around the world 
then the performance income from that can really add up. Um, so those are all very key sources of, of revenue the publishers mm-hmm. collect. And there's a collection society, well, basically, the collection societies collect it and then they get, get to the publisher in the right. But ultimately, it's, you know, at the moment, publishing is quite a healthy business. And uh, it's a really important business now because I think the, 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 basically the song, having great songs is really, really key at the moment. And publishers working with writers can really help mm-hmm. people and artists with great songs. So I think that we play a really important function in that respect too. If you're a songwriter starting out, your current songwriting process may simply be you with your notebook, keyboard, or laptop creating music on your own. However, as you build your career, the team members that you take on, whether they're co-writers, publishers, producers, music supervisors, etc., will likely be instrumental in finding new opportunities and taking your career as a songwriter to the next level. To close, here's some final advice from Karen Kosowski on focusing on your craft alongside building a team, and from Norman Arnold on staying flexible as a songwriter when working with other team members, especially when composing for a specific project such as a film, TV show, or particular artist. In my experience, I think it's good to realize that your publisher won't do it all for you. You know, like it's still very much about networking yourself and and word of mouth Mm. that's how you're going to get a bunch of rights if and I'm speaking again from the point of view of like a songwriter who's not an artist yeah Um, you know it definitely like as a writer working with artists you may get some you may get set up on some co-writes through your publisher but a lot of it is also just like you know people hearing hey she's she's good or you Mm -hmm. know you should write with so-and-so and I mean I think the biggest thing for me, at least this is my philosophy, is just like I'm just focused on writing the best songs I can right, and doing the best work I can and then letting the chips fall where they may. Like I've, you know, I've had various meetings with publishers and I have really good relationships with several in town here. And I, for me, I think it's like it's the finding the right time when when you need a publisher because you can do a lot without a publisher too. Um, so I don't know. I feel like, I think that shouldn't be your focus. I think your focus should be the work, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And the rest will fall into place. You know, if you're doing good work, keep your head down, you know, get out there, write with a bunch of people. That's more important, you know. I just really want to stress that Really, you know, composers who want to go down this road should take to heart that there's going to be, you know, executive notes. People are going to comment on your music. They're going to want changes. Um, And and that's just the nature of what that job is. And um, I I like I like your idea of, of, you know, being a little more um, shading and nuance. But. I had an analogy. It's it's like the professional, uh, you know, football analogy, you know, like if you're going to if you're going to, you know, choose to play professional football. Uh, but then you complain that every time you get the ball, people hit you. Uh, it's like, well, I think you might have chosen the wrong game, you know. And right. You, yeah. you might have to make some accommodations to get to get farther ahead. Right. Yeah, because I mean, it's a job, right? Like it's <laughs> like playing music is. I think it's it has it has this like romantic quality to it in a lot of people's minds. I mean, definitely in my mind. But I, it's so interesting to learn from people like you on this podcast how different careers in music can look and it's not all like you know being the artist and being that like 
ego, I guess, or that icon. Um, there's so many other forms that it can take that are very like collaborative and almost like a construction worker. Like you got to do the work, <laughs> you got to, you got to get the training, you have to work with other people and, you know, make decisions and yeah, it's interesting. Well, you know, I think, I think you just kind of really hit the nail on the head with all of that. You know, it, it <laughs> yeah. really, it really is. I mean, it's just, it, it is, it is doing the work. I think, I think there is a romantic idea that you'll, you'll strum your guitar and, and sing into your <laughs> laptop and send it out into the universe and, and, you know, gold will come raining down from the heavens, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I would say if it was easy, there'd be no such thing as plumbers, right? Like, right. I don't know, should I be a plumber? Am I going to fix toilets or should I write a hit song? Oh, I'll go, I'll, I'll go write a hit song. Like, I mean, it's, it's not easy. And, and everyone I know, and I mean that the, 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 I think the most interesting thing is I've found in my career is the, the higher up I've, I've, I've gone, you know, and, and through all the mm-hmm. meeting the different people, all through the times at Warner Brothers and, and all the sessions I've done and all the great shows. I mean, it's almost like the higher up you get, the nicer everyone actually does become. And I think right. and they, they're professional and they work hard and they show up every day on time. And, and they, they like you said, you hit the nail on the head. They work. They they mm-hmm. they work really, really, really hard. And um, I've seen, you know, worked with composers and, and very well-known people and I don't want to start name dropping. I'll have to, you know, get a broom to sweep up after I <laughs> drop so many names. But I, but I don't want to do that because it doesn't. It, it, what matters is how how hard the, the people work, you know, on their right. on their shows or on their craft. And I think, yeah, you really you really hit it. It's 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 true. And so it's not. Um, it looks easy, you know. It may look mm-hmm. easy, and I think you go on Insta and you're like, wow, what a you know, great life. But it's it's hard work, you know, and um, yeah. long hours and. But it's thoroughly enjoyable. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, but you enjoy the work. So it's, it's, it's exciting. Thank you so much to Norman Arnold, Byron Pascoe, Mark Jowett, and Karen Kosowski for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Offkey. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you would like me to cover, please email me at offkey@membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or TaliaSW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Chilotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro, outro, and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them.